Hi, I'm Gordon Lamp here with the Real Finds Podcast, a podcast series where we interview key entrepreneurs, scientists, and activists who are shaping real estate and, as a result, our world. On today's podcast, we speak with Tim Calise. Tim is a successful investor, entrepreneur, and business consultant. On the podcast, we discuss real estate systems, improving the real estate business model, and investing in uncertain times. Moreover, we discuss wrapping up a successful $300 million hedge fund, and what it's like working with one of the internet's most famous entrepreneurs, Alex Hermosi. Hey, Tim, thanks for hopping on the podcast today. Oh, I'm, I'm pleasure to be here, Gordon. Thank you so much and, and looking forward to, uh, to the conversation. So before we start off, tell me a little bit about yourself. Tim, how do you get into business, this whole SAS, uh, SAA, uh, S world? Like what, yeah. what's going on? Yeah, so I uh, I was the the kid who in middle school uh, like carried a briefcase to the like morning meeting because I just like emulated those people that I saw around me that uh, that for some reason it just looked cool I guess to the probably to the chagrin of, of my two sisters uh, but I always knew that I always like numbers I like business I like math I like kind of just the entrepreneurial stuff right as a from an early age you know finding a problem to solve. You know, having the lemonade stand, flipping hockey memorabilia on eBay, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, and so I always knew I wanted to, to go into that world uh, and started off in uh, the traditional brokerage, like stock brokerage business. And it just quite honestly wasn't for me. Uh, but I had these great clients on the other end of the phone that I, I kept thinking to myself, how do I get on like on their side of this world? Um, and so that at 2020 to 21, uh, introduced me to the alternative investment world and, and the idea of hedge funds. And, and we had a couple as, as clients at the time. Uh, and so being single and 21, I had nothing better to do other than, you know, sell all my worldly possessions, uh, move from the Northeast down to, uh, to, the, to the Southeast and started a hedge fund. Uh, and we were fortunate enough to be able to raise over $300 million uh, in the next couple of years. Uh, and then 2008 happened. We kind of got in it out in advance of that, which was very fortuitous for us. And then I spent the, last, the next 10 years in fitness and technology. Uh, and that led me most recently to uh, to working on the executive team over at Gym Launch alongside uh, Alex and Layla Hormozzi, uh, which has just given me just it allowed me to scratch that entrepreneurial itch on a new level. Uh, and uh, and so I've always kind of been in that world. Uh, always kind of had an itch to be artistic in the the business creative sense, uh, and so now I help uh, up and coming entrepreneurs uh, co create the business and life uh, that they envision. So you talked a little bit about alternative investments and hedge funds, and so for some of our listeners, I mean, most of our listeners are very educated, yeah. but on finance. But for some of our listeners, what really is a hedge fund, and what are alternative investments? Yeah, so uh, most people are familiar with kind of traditional equities and bonds, you know, stocks and bonds and things like that. Um, hedge funds are just a, a kind of fun word for things that are sit that sit outside of that kind of structure. Uh, and what it means, uh, what it meant for us was we were what was termed a long short equity hedge fund, which meant not only could we buy things and bet that the price stock price would go up, we could also bet against companies and think the stock price would go down and, and make a profit thereafter. So. Uh, that was kind of our slice of the world, uh, call it a mutual fund that can kind of go uh, take advantage on the upside and the downside. Um, and so the kind of alternative investments, real estate and, and hedge funds will, will kind of fit into that that kind of uh, that idea. I guess crypto now and a bunch of other things would, would fit that category. 
So I'm curious, what was your biggest short? Because we always talk about the big short nowadays. Uh, what was the biggest short position that you guys had and, and what really drove you guys into that? It's such a good question because I think about the time that we just went through with COVID uh, and back, it was probably 2006 timeframe, 2006, 2007. Uh, in China, we saw this trend of everybody became kind of a day trader. You had you know, stay at home, you know, spouses who filled their day with stock picking. And there was a company called China Mobile that was like the darling of the time and everybody was in it. And I, I don't remember the exact stock prices, but the equivalent of went from a dollar to $300 effectively within a couple of days. And we said, there's no way this is sustainable. But there is a saying in kind of the investment community, which says uh, the market can stay wrong longer than you can stay liquid. <laughs> and we saw it go from a dollar to say $150. We're like, this thing's coming back to zero, basically. And then it went to 200 and 250 and 300 And we were just standing in the face of this. And we just kept, you have to borrow stock from somewhere else in order to, in order to short it. Uh, and we had a paper loss in the millions until it went from 300 back down to, well, okay, kind of came back down to earth, but it ended up being a seven or eight figure uh, win for us. Uh, but we probably went through some, some significant stomach pain uh, in, in the interim. So it was, ended, up, ended up the right way. So. Yeah, sometimes it's so hard to find value when uh, retail investors see something different. So yeah. I wanted to go and kind of transition into value. You talk a lot in a lot of your podcasts and um, some of your media content about living a value-driven life. And I know I've got a little one, uh, so I've definitely taken a step back in some regards. I'm still working 70 to 80 hours some weeks, but um, certainly trying to live more uh, in terms of value at home. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about kind of how you came to that philosophy? Because there's certainly so many folks in the hedge fund world and the entrepreneurial world that have this total grind set mentality. And the grind set mentality is great, but it's something that's very hard for a dad or a mom to accomplish and still be there for their family. Yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll, first of all, I recognize that there are seasons to life, right? So there are times where, you know, just the situation uh, requires you to dig in and, and potentially not kind of find the balance that you ultimately want. But for me, the model started very early on. My, my dad was in the, the finance industry uh, and traveled a lot. And so I think as a, as a young person, I said, you know, if I was ever able uh, to kind of find the opportunity or create the opportunity to have choice and have options around my time and, and how I spend it, uh, that was something that I that I really valued. And, and I think early on, I said I wanted to be retired at 30 or 35. And really, I didn't want to be retired and like sitting on the beach. Uh, I really just wanted optionality. And so I, I have gone through seasons. Uh, I mean, Jim Launch was a great example. That was a, a high-flying company. We were probably, the, I believe, the fastest-growing private company in the United States for a period of time. And, you know, you got to strike while the iron's hot, Right. But if you look at it and, and measure over decades and not just the days, uh, I always sought to have the ability to construct a life uh, around the, my priorities uh, and the things that I really care deeply about. Uh, and so now instead of kind of saying, I'm just going to go and, and grind for the sake of the grind, uh, I've chosen to selectively pick those areas where 
when it is a season of, of hunker down and get the work done, uh, it's, it's from a position of love and, and selectivity and not like obligation. Uh, but I can still go coach my, my daughter's lacrosse team. Uh, I can go play golf with my son, et cetera, et cetera. So I just think that's what most people really want is they want control. Uh, and I think people are willing to do the work when it's aligned with their, their intentions and their, uh, their values. Uh, and, and I think we just are now the pendulum is kind of swinging back in a way that I think people are, are coming to that conclusion on their own and, and really desiring that and, and forcing those decisions to take place. So how do people get to that level of control? Because like, I'll admit, I, I have investments on my own and I do quite well, but uh, most of what I earn comes from my daily labor. <laughs> and so um, how, do, how do folks get from that point where they have control or, or, or get from that point where they um, are working maybe an hourly wage to a point where they have control of their time? Yeah. So there's two kind of themes that I would bring up. So one is around leverage. So when you're working an hourly role, um, I mean, I, I started, I think we all kind of start in that, in that position. Uh, when you are an hourly worker or a salaried worker, you know, you can effectively earn while you, you learn while you earn, if you will. So if you have a desire to, to create something in the future, uh, you, that doesn't mean you have to kind of quit your job and then, you know, go all in and hopefully, you know, kind of jump off the cliff and, and learn to, and build your wings on the way down. You can learn the skills piece by piece that at some point in the future, you can kind of uh, secure your independence if you want to think about it that way. Um, so for example, uh, if you want to start your own business, but you don't feel like you have the sales skills, just as an example, um, it is more than reasonable to say, let's go find, you know, find a role where you can become an expert salesperson do that for you know a period of time. Now you've acquired the skills on someone else's dime. You've earned some money, and then once you have the set of skills you feel are, are necessary to take that next step, then maybe it starts as a side project and then becomes a full time role. So I think that's I like to think about optionality and you know as a growth minded mindset person. Uh, it's kind of like what do I need to know to get to where I want to go. I think the second is around our time. Uh, and Dan Martell, uh, a great SaaS coach uh, and multiple time, multiple founder and, and has had multiple uh, eight figure exits, wrote a great book called Buy Back Your Time. And the concept is, I think we as individuals do too much. And so I have a lot of folks, uh, a lot of uh, folks in my circle who are, are real estate agents, both residential and commercial, you know, they're building teams and they're trying to figure out how do I leverage who I am, leverage my brand, but they're not doing, they might uh, find an executive assistant or they might find a junior partner, someone to kind of take on some of those responsibilities so that when they are working, when they choose to make, uh, to dedicate that time, it is highly leveraged time around what is the return on, on the time and effort and things like that. So um, I, I just, I know I, in the entrepreneurial community, so many people are still doing kind of $10 an hour tasks while they're trying to command, you know, a hundred, five hundred, a thousand, five thousand dollars an hour. Uh, you, you have to be very clear with how you dedicate your time and, and allocate it appropriately. Yeah, I, I know personally for me that's been a huge struggle. So I'm a, a commission-based driven uh, professional, and uh, I would say typically I probably waste ten or twenty percent of my time on tasks that I really shouldn't be doing. Um, and that's something I've, I I know I've been working with um, uh, our team to try to reduce that. Um, how, how do you identify those kind of um, 
uh, gaps in um, where you're actually achieving value and uh, return on uh, investing your time? Because that's something I know you've talked a lot about. And so I'm just curious, what are the steps that you think someone can apply to kind of find those um, those uh, weaknesses in their return on their time investment? Yeah. So the first thing that I do with any company that I work with is we do a time audit. So you, it, it sounds kind of like you're slowing down, but you almost it's, uh, you have to slow down to go fast to some to some extent. So take a week every 15 minutes. What'd you do? And by doing that, you actually start to identify patterns. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the fitness industry, and and anytime somebody wants to make a change, the first thing is document. Just write down what you're eating, what you're doing, uh, and just by doing that, you actually become significantly more mindful of of the choices that you're making because you're now accountable to to what's on the paper. Um, but by, by doing that, you can start to look objectively on how you're spending your time. And then, uh, again, not to, to borrow some of what uh, Dan shared in his book, which I'm a big proponent of, you can effectively go through and rank where you're spending your mo- the, most, the most amount of your time. So there's three things. One is volume. The second is, am I good at it? So is it in my zone of genius or not? And the third is, does it deliver value? So by kind of triangulating those things, and it's really the, the, the last two, the, the, the volume is just a kind of a multiplier. You should try to find the things where you are aligned with the zone of genius and high value. You should immediately look to get rid of those things that are outside of your zone of genius that you're hopefully not spending a ton of time on, but a lot of people do, and of course, deliver very little value. So I think go, going through that exercise, um, a great mentor of mine says, you know, kind of fear has no place on paper. The 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 idea of like, this is all in my head. What do I do? Simply put it down and tick away at it a little bit at a time. And you'd be amazed at what you can achieve in a pretty short amount of time. So what is the zone of genius? I think that's a, a fascinating term. And so I'm, I'm just curious, how would you define uh, that zone? Yeah. So I, I look at it for myself as a combination of what feeds my energy. I think, I think from a time perspective, let's kind of pull back for a second. People think about time like a budget. You know, where do I spend my time? I will say for me, I can spend my time in a bunch of different areas, but talking to people, you know, having conversations like this feed me from an energy perspective. So if I, I can do this, if I did this for, for eight hours or 10 hours or 12 hours, at the end of the day, I would be just as energized as I was at the beginning of the day. Have me doing other things, even for a minute, and it just zaps my energy. So I try to find the thing that I am both uh, uniquely kind of feeds my energy, but also skill set that I am uniquely uh, uh, kind of positioned to do. So I can't easily give my uh, my executive assistant uh, certain tasks because you know being here with you, for example, you know it feeds me energetically. And it's something that I think will bring bring us both kind of collective value. So I try to stay to those as much as possible, and then and then bring others in who you know uh, that are really good. And and I spent probably over a decade, Gordon, doing things that I felt like I needed to do because I was the right guy to do it. And in reality, I actually started to give some of those things off to other people where their zone of genius was that domain. So it wasn't mine, it was theirs. And that fed them uh, both energy and, and be able to, to make a living and things like that. So I just think we have to be more mindful of those things and, and there's processes in place to, to, to start to do that. 
So I know you're speaking about other people. Uh, one of the things I know you've talked a lot about is becoming a connector. And uh, the real estate business, fundraising, they're all huge um, parts uh, driven by being a connector and, and being able to reach out to different individuals, sometimes of different walks of life or different financial statuses. Um, how would you say that you found connecting people and what are some tips that you could give to that real estate agent or that, um, that commercial broker or that, or that uh, GP that's looking to go out there and fundraise? Yeah. So generally speaking, uh, I think there's a naive perspective, which is like, I, I need to know everything. The reality is if you know everything, then you need no one. So the, the, <laughs> yes. the, the counter to that is if I recognize I don't need to know everything, then I should build a quote unquote Rolodex. You know, this goes into the, your network is your net worth kind of concept, but like, who do I want to know and who do I need to know to be able to get to where I want to go and deliver the type of value that I want to be able to deliver. Right. So as a, as a broker, for example, um, you know, it may serve you very well to have connections in insurance and with CPAs and other things. And actually, one of my clients is uh, is deeply in this world, uh, thinking about moving your impact from transactional to relational. Because, you know, you're not just selling somebody a home, you're not just renting somebody an office, you're not just doing these things, you know, in a in a single transaction, it means something to someone in the context of their story. So the house might be the home they're trying to build. The office might be the first step in recognizing that their you know, kind of little idea has now grown into something else. So how can you be the connector to help that person, your client or, or someone in your network, move towards their goal, right? So I bought my house. The agent was, did a phenomenal job. She referred me to a painter because we wanted to do some painting. And he said, well, what else do you need? You know, I noticed the grass needed, you know, tending to, uh, you know, what are you, what are you doing for landscaping? I've got a guy. And then, you know, plumbing and HVA. I made one connection and he introduced me to six other people in his, his network. It made me feel good because I didn't have to go and do the kind of, uh, you know, yellow pages roulette of hoping to find someone. Uh, and it, and he became more valuable to me. Right. And so he's, he delivered his value above and beyond putting paint on the walls. And I think we can all think of how can we help somebody move closer to where they want to go, focused on the outcome, not the transaction. So one of the biggest things that I know, uh, be it a, a GP or a broker, often struggles with is going out there and making the ask. And to build a pretty large hedge fund, I mean, you were in the hundreds of millions of, of net worth, um, you have to make a lot of asks and a lot of big asks. Um, how, how do you ask someone to fork over seven or eight figures? Um, what, what's the method that you go through and, and how, and how do you go about that? Yeah. So, so first of all, it's important to recognize as with everything, the laws of compounding and the, and nonlinear growth apply here. And I just want to preface this by saying that we started with a hundred thousand dollars. You cannot go from being a $100,000 manager and going ask for a $10 million allocation. 
It just doesn't work that way. Yes, okay. So just like there are seasons in life, there are seasons in business, there are seasons in efforts that you're putting forward. So when you are small, you say, what is the value proposition that I have and who are the types of people that will most resonate with where I am, the state uh, of of where I am today? And in, in the hedge fund world and what we were doing, that was high net worth individuals who were looking for a better place for them to place their retirement assets. And so at that time, what I recognized, just to go into a little story, what I recognized at that time for for anyone who was kind of in that market in the early 2000s, hedge funds were hot. It was like the Wild West. And hedge fund managers had gotten a big head about them. It was, you should be lucky to give me capital, which was the opposite (laughs) of how me being naive thought the whole dynamic should work. Uh, And so I just took the exact opposite uh, approach. And I said, you know, Mrs. Smith, Mr. Smith, you worked for 40 years to put this money together. I will make you two promises. One, I'm never going to lose your money, at least big time. And number two, you will always be able to reach me. I'm going to be hyper communicative and we're going to be protectors of what is so valuable to you. And that's how we went from 100,000 to 250 to, you know, a million. And it started, the ball starts to roll. Once we got to about 25 million, that's when we started to go to small institutions and the, in, the allocations were like a million to most of them have, have limits on what they can do of 10%. So a million to two and a half million, that got us from 25 to 100. Once we got to 100, they were 25 million, you know, 10 to, 10 to $25 million chunks. We got to 150 and then I got $150 million over the next six months. So that's a long way of saying if you are a, a, a GP, if you're trying to raise capital, you still have to understand who your avatar is and what your unique selling proposition is. Like, why you? Uh, and if you can't answer that and you can't answer it for the person in the context of what it means for them, you know, you really should go back just like building a business because that's what you're doing. What's the story you're telling? What's the value you're bringing forward? Uh, and then who has your core client is a great question to ask. So if I, if I was raising capital today for startups, I would think who has you know, startup relationships. Who has the capital that that wants to do that? Who's had an exit? I have a list of ten people I would think of to call. Who you know, I could align myself with as an example. So, uh, so I th- that's a long way of kind of saying you have to know what what business you're in uh, and who your who your ideal client avatar is, and then focus on that. You've built a lot of businesses, and you've really made a, a very successful career, particularly out of building service businesses. Yeah. Real estate is a service business, ultimately. Mm-hmm. I, know, I know we like to you know, sometimes talk about all sorts of different things, but ultimately we're serving our clients, right? Yes. Um, what, what do you think is unique about the service business industry? And um, can you talk a little bit about kind of what your theory is and kind of building service businesses and how you execute? Yeah, so I think philosophically, I like, I, 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 service businesses, for me, are aligned with who I am and what I what value I'm trying to bring to the market. Um, selling products is phenomenal. It is just not my wheelhouse. It doesn't get me excited. I personally am drawn to relationship-based commerce in general. That has also naturally led itself to subscription services and memberships and things like that, where you make a single relationship sale, and then you build that relationship over time solving additional problems, solving them in different ways. And, and that kind of exercise of putting those puzzle pieces together uh, is, is where I've decided over the last kind of decade or so to, to really focus. Uh, real estate agents, brokers, uh, et cetera, 
you know, are, are in the relationship business. I mean, we talk about this all the time, uh, you know, about, you know, the, whether you're being residential, you know, it's, it's building a relationship with, with Mr. and Mrs. Smith and, and understanding why they're trying to, why are they selling? Why are they buying? What are the goals? What, how can you, but I think that's where my vision of, if you are looking at it as a transaction, you are missing the point. So I think we should all think of, and especially in this day and age with, you know, AI and the internet and all that, like the reality is you have to deliver a value proposition that is non-scalable or not, you know, can't easily be replaced. The idea of like, I can go and source open houses uh, in your area this week is a not, is not really a great value that they're a dime a dozen. But understanding that Mrs. Smith cares deeply about her house uh, and you know wants to downsize because of all these reasons, you know now I can actually tend to those to those outcomes. And so I just think if you can think in those terms, it unlocks the world for you, and then it allows you to be a connector. The more connected you are, the more valuable you can be in in kind of that network that you can build around you. One of the big things you talk about is system building and kind of improving that network. I'm curious, what do you think are the biggest steps towards building those systems that kind of get you through that process? Because there's a lot of folks that are, and you've already mentioned it, that are looking at AI, that are looking at um, VAs and uh, uh, remote assistants. What do you think is the, the biggest step that people can take? And what's kind of your process in kind of building out systems in a service-based business? Yeah, so there's there's... There are two types of systems, right? There are people systems, and there are kind of call it IT automation type systems, right? And so you have to be clear how you integrate those two things uh, to get you to where you want to go. In the beginning, you kind of start pen and paper. You know, it's the idea of you know design the process. So, well, first of all, we call it the ten eighty ten kind of framework. The first 10% is defining what the problem is or the outcome, you know, et cetera. Like, what am I actually doing here? The 80% is the actual production or carrying out of the, the, the job, if you will. And the last 10% is quality assurance. If you start with that framework, then you say, okay, I'm going to do this manually first. I need to uh, send out a list of uh, upcoming open houses uh, or you know, uh, potential you know, commercial buildings uh, every week. In the beginning, you could do a manual search. You can say, here's how I'm going to do it. Here are the sites I'm going to go to, et cetera, et cetera. And then at the end is, you know, does it look right? And is it formatted properly and go into the right audience and things like that? You can then take that and say, well, how can I use tools, both people, because let's just say you're the high earner, you should not be doing that work. So the first is, can I replace my time and effort and, and investment with at a lower at a lower rate? Yes. Okay. Well, is it a people system or is it a, a, an actual technical system that you need? Well, it might be a combination of both. But, you know, sending out handwritten cards, for example, now you can do it online. But, you know, we've, we've, spent, we've spent 15 years sending out new cards, you know, hand, uh, handwritten cards to, to clients. Before the advent of the Internet, you know, this became an Internet thing, uh, uh, an online op uh, uh, option. I had my team do it. In the beginning, I did it because I wanted to write the scripts. So you just think about what, what am I doing? How do I pass it off to someone else? And then what systems do I need? Uh, and then what is your quality assurance you know, kind of method? How do you know it's working? How do you know it, it's getting the outcome that you want is really important in my opinion. Uh, and somebody, if you're going to do this, only make one owner of everything. 
the process should be owned by one person. If it's own, if it's not owned by anyone, you know, it's owned by my my multiple people. Nobody owns it, right? So be really clear about who who is in in control of uh, of the process uh, from the beginning, because it shouldn't be you. So we've built better systems, and we're trying to go ahead and apply it. What it, what do you see as the number one ways that real estate companies are lacking in terms of applying and kind of reinventing systems to get better ROI and, and better value? I think in general, the real estate industry, and I'm not calling anybody in particular, is stuck in the ways of this is how we do it. <laughs> well, that's fine. I'd say uh, about half the industry would agree yeah. with you. So the question is, if that's the case, then if you look like everyone else, then how? Then it's really, you're not standing out. So the question is, how do you stand out? And going back to some of the things we talked about earlier, um, there's a, a concept called being a, being in a, or creating a category of one. This is something I do with every portfolio company and, uh, and client that I work with. You know, what is, what is the virtual real estate that only we, that we can both define and be the only player in? As an agent, I would think about that. And so that is, you know, the ver just to put this in black and white, it could be, I am a residential real estate agent. That is, looks like everyone else and you're a dime a dozen versus I am an agent for, uh, you know, military families with two kids who are looking to relocate and blah, blah, blah. Like they call it niching down, but effectively what is your niche is super important because if you're for everyone, you're for no one. And I think you take that and triangulate it against what is the value proposition that you can offer to that to that audience, and you will move from being an agent to being a solution. And what is the provider of a solution in your in the context of what you're trying to do? Then you build the systems to execute against that. Yeah. So how would someone go and find their niche? Because like there's so many niches out there in the real estate world. Yeah. Do you have any advice as somebody who's who's really drilled down with a wide variety of businesses, both in the real estate world and outside of it? So I'll, I'll put it this way. If you're looking for the kind of more concrete answer, it's just take the universe and keep getting smaller and smaller until it feels uncomfortably small. That's one way to do it. Uh, <laughs> yes, okay, because that, okay. by, by that point, it's like, okay, I am for, you know, people named Gordon who live in the Midwest who are looking, you know, it's like at some point you get to a, you know, to, to something that at least you can put your arms around. That is the short term way to differentiate yourself. Now, if we're looking out three, five, 10 years in the future and you're kind of planting those seeds now for the future, I believe that intention based positioning is going to be the way that things are going to progress. And what that means is this is the person that I am. This is how I see the world. And if you identify with that, then you're my person. That is more around brand and identity. It is harder to do. It is less controlled. It's less tangible. And it definitely takes more time. So in some ways, you kind of have to almost go like direct response to a, to some extent for a period of time while you're building up kind of the brand and position and things like that. Yeah. Uh, let's move over and, and discuss Alan and kind of SAAS uh, lead generation. And there's a lot of there's a lot there. And there's a lot that the real estate world and the service industry world needs to learn about lead generation, both in terms of improving it and also a lot of agents and brokers and GPs are stuck in the past. It's either country club networks, 
they get business through signs or they use LoopNet CoStar almost exclusively. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Allen and kind of how um, you've built up um, systems of lead generation? So, so Allen was a portfolio company that we built alongside Gym Launch, which was a consulting business, and Prestige Labs, which was a supplement business. So uh, our core avatar, uh, we're talking kind of 2018 to 2020, uh, call it pre-COVID, uh, were gym owners, primarily brick and mortar independent fitness facilities. So first, we kind of gave them a better business model. Then we gave them products to sell to help drive profits and revenue and things like that. And then the problem that we we knew, but we ta- tried to tackle it in a couple of different ways was lead generation. If you talk to any business owner, I would bet you that more than 90% of people will say, I need more leads. <laughs> you might even be thinking, oh. I need more leads. This might be you. In the fitness industry, it was 11 times out of 10. It was, well, what's the thing you need to, to better your business? I need more leads. The reality is in fitness in that time, uh, one out of six inquiries or some, you know, call it leads would actually be nurtured properly and ever show up for an appointment with the business. So when you're literally burning, you know, 80% of your ad spend because you don't have a system to actually do something and create value from those people you're leaving a lot on the table. And so we first started with trainings and, you know, here's how to nurture them and things like that. And the reality is, you know, you know, John at the front desk in a, in a business is not nurturing leads the way that you probably want them to. So we built a better solution. We built Allen, which was a machine learning kind of driven lead generation platform. So if you think the entry point was somebody went to your website or Facebook and submitted a form. So now we have first name, last name, email address, phone number. That's kind of the input. We knew with a high degree of confidence how to take that person, that raw material, and turn it into a physical person walking in the doors of a, of a facility. So we turn the conversation from, you know, Gordon, you don't actually need more leads. You need more shows. It's a very different conversation. So we effectively allowed, we, we built a system to double or triple the number of people, the efficiency of that process. And by doing so, we increased the value of gyms. Well, as I mentioned before, this was kind of going into Q1 2020, COVID hits, and very quickly, we have to pivot, Alan, to uh, get gym uh, members, potential gym members, uh, to an online assessment, like an online you know, Zoom meeting or something like that. And we were able to do that and do it very successfully. And, and it took us about another day to look at each other and say, we can now take an online lead and get them to a virtual consultation. We're not limited to gyms anymore. The world is now opened up to us. And so we ended up expanding Allen and pointing it and, and uh, creating value in about 30 different industries um, in, in that had similar problems. So service-based industry, you know, businesses that had a subscription or membership uh, type model. So that's, you know, how to, I think your follow-up question was like, how does, how do we think about that in the context of real estate? Um, I think leads are used to, how you nurture leads is like the start of the relationship. You know, how somebody enters your world is how, determines how long they're going to stay. So I would look at it to say how efficient, first of all, do you have data around your, your nurturing process? Set some goals, 
and then do things a little bit probably differently than everybody else. Because if everybody else is having the same problem, you should probably not follow the pack. So what do you do differently? And, and I'll kind of give you the answer. Um, speed of, of response is number one. Uh, you know, a, a, a lead, a hot lead is literally dying on by the minute. So the faster you can get to them, the more likely you are to, to be able to take advantage. And the second is schedule. The faster you can get them scheduled, uh, our, our data at the time showed uh, you pretty much had 70 hours uh, from the time they opted in to the time that they actually completed that appointment, or else they, the, the likelihood that you were able to monetize that lead uh, would go down substantially. Yeah, that's, that's not a crazy thing to hear. I know for us, um, when I took, took over kind of our sales processes in around 2018, um, for us, it was just three things made like 50% improvement, which was number one, we set up a CRM system that had all the data on people uh, that we could then create follow-up schedules. Uh, beforehand, we were following up once. We developed a follow-up program of three times for every person um, because a lot of people are a little more hesitant for a large asset like commercial real estate to proceed. And sometimes it takes three times. And then the biggest one of all is, as you put it, which is the least surprising of, of everything I think we talked about is we set up a, a program. So whenever a lead would come in, all of our brokerage team would get a text that that lead came in and all the lead information to immediately call them. And for us, I mean, we call people usually within five minutes at a very minimum, which I'd say beats industry standards. And as a result, our buildings are far better leased than industry standards. So um, I'm, I'm really curious, um, most of all, about your relationship, and I think a lot of our listeners are, with Alex Hermosi. Mm -hmm. um, he's all over the internet. Um, and how did you meet Alex, and how did you guys get kind of associated together? Yeah, so uh, in 2000, so from 2010 to 2018, uh, I, my wife and I had developed a multi-unit uh, seven-figure gym business. Uh, it was under a, an existing franchise structure. And in 2018, uh, I actually ended up taking ownership of uh, the parent company. And at that time, as a, as a franchisee formerly, um, I had become aware of Jim Launch. Uh, I understood kind of what the you know the consulting offering that they had was, uh, and actually somebody, one of the other franchisees in our system had had, I think, reached out to Alex or met him or something like that, and and then that message kind of made it across to everybody else, saying this is someone you should you should go talk to. They have an interesting kind of take on on how to monetize how how to improve the business, and so I started as a kind of a client, uh, and I said you know I want access to the consulting. Uh, uh, information and the licensing information that uh, that he had, uh, and so that's where I started. Uh, and then we implemented the fundamentals in our business, and, and we're very pleased with with the results. Uh, and then in 2019, uh, that's when we launched, or or Jim launched launched uh, uh, Prestige Labs, which was the uh, the supplement brand. And in January of I believe it was 2019, they had like a, a launch sale competition, and the prize for the top ten uh, highest sales uh, for the for the month was a trip down to Austin to meet uh, Alex and Layla, and we were in the top five. And so I got to fly down there and got to meet them. And and so at their literally literally at their dining table at their house, 
was you know basically nine nine people plus me and everyone was going around and it was like a little ad hoc you know tell me what's the biggest impediment let's just solve it now that kind of thing and i was towards the end of the group and i said quite honestly i don't really have anything cuz you know i don't really want to own gyms i want to kind of do something else uh and alex said you're right <laughs> after talking to you for two days you probably should do something else you're in the wrong vehicle you're the wrong value vehicle so i went and sold my gyms uh but i now owned this fitness chain uh this this franchise and so i had called him shortly thereafter and i said i loved everything i heard uh i want to tell the other kind of gym owners in this system uh to use your your ip and instead of ripping you off, I want to see if you want to do a JV and, you know, maybe that's the way to, to make this work. And he, I guess, appreciated that. Uh, and he called me a couple of weeks, a couple of months later, excuse me, and said, you know, I, I've loved the conversation. Uh, we're looking for someone to come on as uh, as kind of a, a head of business development, some a little bit of finance function, but kind of let's get these, these businesses running more efficiently. Uh, and so I joined in mid-2019. Uh, and then that was kind of when things started to really, 2019 was the big year. We went from... I believe 10 or 12 million in, in 2018 uh, to over 35 million in revenue in 2019. Um, then Bill Allen at the end of 2019 into 2020, uh, and then ran that for a period of time. And then uh, publicly, you know, we we exited uh, all three businesses in uh, in late 2021. We sold uh, the majority to, uh, to a private equity firm uh, out of the Northwest. So you and Alex have very different and yeah. mindsets in terms of how you perceive. Uh, valuing your time and and kind of um, what what you're looking for in um, not just methodology but also kind of end goal. You're much more of a you know a return on investment and then uh, use it for uh, family time and and kind of get more of a value driven life. He's much more of a grind set, make a tremendous amount of money mentality. Did you have a lot of conflict between the two of you at, when you were working together, or uh, was it a pretty equitable, uh, happy relationship? Yeah, I mean, good question. You know, I I knew at that time going in that that this was going to be a, a season of you know, of investment of time and effort and things like that. Um, so I was under kind of no real false pretense. Um, <laughs> I ha I have to say, Alex is someone I look to who redefined what leverage and output and speed means. I thought I would, you know, you hear terms like, you know, I can multitask or, you know, I work fast. I like being in, in, uh, you know, quickly evolving, uh, businesses. Like this was like that on light speed. So, uh, I took a lot of those, those lessons learned, uh, and where Alex and Lil are right now. And I love them for it. They're positioned like Layla, for example, is one of the best operators I've ever met. She is phenomenal at people systems and things like that. Alex is phenomenal at taking an existing idea that is doing very well, tweaking it, adding you know different components to it, optimizing it, uh, and then scaling it. Right. My zone of genius or the place that I like to be is just the smaller end. And I think part of that is coming up as an entrepreneur. I maybe I still kind of carry some of those you know David Goliath feelings inside of me, like. I have a podcast myself called Leveling the Field, and I think I have a, I just so clearly remember a time when I laid in bed thinking the world was going to end because we were underperforming, we were burning cash, my wife was sleeping next to me, and I'm like, she just doesn't even know how you know what we might be. 
and my kid like and I just remember that feeling. I think that feeling has stuck with me and and not to make it about, you know, kind of a moral journey or something like that, but it doesn't excite me as much scaling a company from 10 to 100 million than it does to to try to help that person who's at $500,000, 250k, a million who who's sitting on a 10 million dollar idea, but they're just so uh their viewpoint is so myopic and, and that's not in a negative way. It's just, they're just trying to kind of hammer through. Uh, and I just really appreciate working with folks like that and being able to hopefully, you know, be the catalyst uh, to, uh, to, to get them to where they want to go. And, you know, if you go to my website, for example, my headline is uh, I make founders dreams come true. And I've used this experience as a number two to multiple now probably two billionaires. I mean, Alex is on his way to being a billionaire very quickly. Uh, and I've had the, the great fortune to work alongside a few others. Uh, I take that number two position uh, and look at it as a, as a process of co-creation. How can I, because I, I don't need the spotlight, how can I make you look and get to where you want to go and be the person you want to be? And I just love the collaborative uh, effort that that, that, uh, that that takes on. Look, I couldn't agree with you more that I think the most exciting thing is taking a business from zero to 10 more than 10 to 100, yeah. uh, even though, you know, um, it, it, certainly the rewards are sometimes greater from 10 to 100. Um, it's it's getting the business off the ground, functional, and building those fundamental systems that really um, can be sometimes the most exciting part of the entrepreneurial journey. Um, one I of the things I want to touch- If you set out to try to build a billion-dollar business, you probably won't. So like we might as well just start building a $10 million business and then be pleasantly surprised when we get there and then go, how do we take this from there? And that's, I only like, use that as a funny analogy because it, it's so true. I think right now, culturally, we're like, if you're not trying to buy the jet at 22 and retire at 23, you know, you're a failure. And I, I just I fundamentally disagree with that, that paradigm. And you also have to know what you want. Uh, I love Alex. I, I think he's, he has said, you know, this is what I am. I want to do something that no one else has been able to do. And if I'm going to do that, I have to do things that no one else is willing to do. And I 100% align with that. My vision is just not me being a billionaire doesn't change my outcome. It just doesn't for me. Yeah, 100% agree with you. So um, uh, I have a good friend who was in the same fraternity as Alex at Vanderbilt. And yeah. I can attest that he, I, I, I before this interview, I sat down with him for about, on Zoom for about half an hour. And I said, hey, you know, tell me a little bit more about Alex, um, uh, just to kind of get a, a heads up. And he said, look, um, he really, he really is kind of that way. And he always was that way. He when he was just starting out at Vanderbilt, he was a gym rat. And um, uh, he wanted to build a billion dollar business from the start. So um, <laughs> uh, there are certainly people with that mentality. Um, I take more of the um, uh, Nick Huber mentality, which is build boring businesses. Um, and uh, look, I, I would rather build some boring businesses, have a really uh, well-leveraged life and um, uh, have a lot of peace at the end of the day. But um, look to each their own. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, I just wanted to double back with you because there's one aspect of your career that I found phenomenally interesting, uh, which is uh, how you guys dealt with uncertain times in the hedge fund industry. Not everybody gives their money back. Uh, you guys gave your money back in 2007. And um, certainly the, the times were changing, but 
there's a lot of incentive when you're running a hedge fund to just keep riding the wave and collecting fees. Um, how do you guys perceive kind of uh, the changing times? Uh, how do you how did you guys kind of anticipate and deal with uncertainty? And uh, what motivates someone to give back a big fund of three hundred million? Yeah, so uh, I would answer in two ways. So just for the story, we started in basically two thousand three. By two, mid two thousand seven, we had over three hundred twenty five million dollars of capital unlevered. Uh, and then October of 2007, we made a judgment call and said, uh, we're effectively taking our fund and going to cash because things are about to get quite ugly. Uh, and so I, I would answer it kind of, and, and our investors basically said, you've lost your touch. Uh, we want our money back, et cetera, et cetera. Other people say they can, they can manage through this environment. And, you know, some probably went off the cliff at hundred miles an hour. Um, but the way I would answer it is I think two things. One is we were very, we were very clear on our mandate and we were very clear on our process and i think more so than anything personally and professionally where things go wrong is when you go outside of your zone we had a very specific way that we saw the world that worked from 2007 uh, 2003 to 2007 and so the commentary we put out at that time was by all intents and purposes this is what a normal functioning market looks like you have to know what that looks like and what that is. This is not that. And as an example, interest rates were low. Ben Bernanke had just said, you know, alt A defaults were going to be contained, uh, you know, things like that. Like the world is fine. The world was not fine. And by having low interest rates at that time, we would, you know, the cover of the Wall Street Journal, I believe in the middle of in the summer of 2007, posted a rumor that Apple was going to get bought out as a leverage buyout from a PE firm for something like $300 billion. It was the most ridiculous, never gonna happen headline, but the stock would shoot up because they're gonna pay a premium and the whole nine yards. So we just made it, we just realized that we couldn't compete at that time. So what I would say is in any uncertain times, stick to your knitting. I mean, Warren Buffett is a great example of this, not to kind of quote someone that everybody does, but it's like, what's the time frame you're talking about? If you need to win today and you need to go outside of, your belief system to do it, I would start asking yourself some serious questions. And so, I mean, like we are that. in uncertain times right now. There's lots of things you can look at, right? The question I would just continue to ask is like, what does normal, what does a normal functioning market as it means to my business and myself, what does that look like? And then be aware of when things start to turn because you're going to hear a lot of noise and everything, but just remember fortunes are made in times of trouble. Look, uh, certainly we're in um, not a normal market right now. Um, well, unless you're uh, one of the bears that thinks we are. Um, in, in terms of um, in terms of how you see things going forward, yeah. I'm curious. Uh, and and let's get to our final four. What what do you see about the future of kind of the service industry and building systems, kind of as we move into this? this next 10 years? Because I think we're going into a period of great uncertainty, just like you guys predicted in 2007, with kind of um, all sorts of things with AI, variable interest rates, um, kind of a, a very changing world and a changing kind of demographic in the United States in terms of age. What are you seeing in terms of the service industry? And, and what are you seeing in terms of your predictions going forward? Yeah, I, you know, right now, especially in kind of the general population, uh, we are in the attention economy right now. 
Uh, and I think to some extent, the pendulum is going to start to swing back, uh, you know, to use the old analogy. I think very soon the tide is going to start to go out. We're going to see who's wearing a bathing suit. And by doing that, I think there's going to be a flushing of the market because the easy money across a number of sectors has kind of already been made. So if you think, you know, you watch million dollar listing on Bravo and I'm going to become an agent because it's easy to sell $50 million properties and be Ryan Serhan, that is not the reality. And if that is what you, why you're in this business, you're going to get a, a rude awakening at some point. So I think kind of that's the first, the pendulum is, is starting to swing. I think because of that, what will happen is we are going to reorient around the idea of intention and identity. And I do believe that brand is going to be the most important thing going forward. You're seeing this in certain areas. I think the attention piece will continue to be there, but I think it's going to be harder to build and hopefully you can ride it longer. So the idea, you know, you know, Ryan Reynolds, for example, went from being an actor to being basically a business mogul um, is not by accident. Parts of that is because people identify with him and he's using his fame to become a bigger brand. I would think to yourself, what brand do you want to create uh, and what narrative do you want out there? Because it's going to take you five plus years to probably get to, to a point where you can you can really trade on it. I think all of us wish we had the brand that Ryan Reynolds or uh, Alex Hermosi has. But um, Alex did 18 of- months, by the way. So I think everybody talks about Alex. <laughs> Nobody knew who Alex was two years ago. <laughs> I remember sitting yeah, I mean, in his house and it was like those old grainy YouTube videos that you see. <laughs> I was there at that time. It was content. It was, you know, function over form. So you just got to start and, somewhere. And, and what's your point of view on life? And what's your point of view on the business? And, and what make like who, who you are and what makes you tick is valuable. You just have to figure out what your voice is. And it's going to take you a couple of years to figure that out. And do you think with Alex, it's just like finding that je ne sais quoi, like that that element of you that's relatively unique and really leaning into it? Or is is it mostly systems-based, like digging into the system of how the algorithm worked, or is it a combination of the two? I think it's a combination of the two. Alex hit it at the exact right time because he is a walking, talking pattern interrupt. In the world of attention, you have a guy who looks like a lumberjack, who is smarter than 95% of the you know, PE firms and investors out there and is incredibly dynamic and driven. So he hit the start exactly at the right time. He then took that and leveraged his, the traction he was getting and the capital that he had to go and basically buy access or, or uh, insights into the algorithm. I mean, there's nothing unique. Mr. Beast posts things like that. And there are groups out there that know how to do these things, right? Systemically, that's a who do you need to know, not a what do you need to know. Because once it's ever changing, and he's built a media team now who is the best of the best, and that is what allowed him to take his raw material and leverage it uh, very, very appropriately. And he's and I mean his recent book launch, six hundred fifty thousand people uh, a couple of weeks ago, was not by accident, but that was years, years in the making. Like uh, business is always that iceberg model, right? It's ten percent that you see and ninety percent that's below the water. So one of the things that we like to talk about on the podcast is we like to go back below the water and find out a little bit more about, you know, uh, our past. And so um, one of the things that we love to ask is what advice would you give uh, young Tim out of high school? Because um, all of us were very interesting characters back then. Uh, Is there, you know, a one minute spiel that you would give that or would you change nothing? 
Uh, it actually would be pretty simple. It would be there is no right way. There is no this is the way it's <laughs> supposed to go. I think we are only limited. We're only limited by our options, but our options are only limited by our imagination. And when I was younger, I don't think I dreamed big enough. And you hear that in other contexts, like your dream should scare you, that kind of stuff. It's the dream big, don't settle. And I think that was is probably what I would tell myself because I was probably more insecure at that time than uh, than I'd like to probably care to admit. But I think that's natural. And I think that insecurity causes you to start to question, uh, you know, how your your level of standards. You know, it's like, I, I, I don't think I can do it. I just kind of lower the bar until it feels good. I would fight as hard as I could to, to keep the bar high. Look, I think all of our pimple-faced uh, high school selves uh, <laughs> didn't have the most confidence, or at least most of us. Um, in, in, terms of, in terms of ways, though, that we can kind of uh, gain confidence or gain insight on the world, um, I'm curious, and we love asking voices that come on our podcast, because some of the best ways that we can kind of transform our minds and transform our perception of the world is through books. Hmm. Is there a book that you would recommend to anyone in our audience who... Uh, might be out there and, 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 and wants to pick up a read? If you're entrepreneurial, Ready, Fire, Aim uh, by Masterson is one that I read probably once or twice a year. Uh, and right now, Buy Back Your Time by Dan Martell. Those are two that I would highly recommend to anyone. There's, there's a ton out there, but those would be the two. And then Alex's books, $100 million offers, $100 million leads uh, are basically free and they are like a masterclass. So uh, we definitely need to uh, pick all those books up. But before we go, we have one really important question to ask. And this is the whole reason for the podcast. The whole reason is to go and reach out to voices that are in various parts of either the real estate industry, periphery to the real estate industry, business, uh, influencing um, kind of the world or the world of business. And who should we bring on next? Because you, you're a man in the arena uh, and you know better than just somebody who's standing on the sidelines, who should we bring on the podcast? Uh, right now, one of the people that I follow and I'm very close to is a gentleman named Sharon Trivata. He is the president of Real Brokerage, and I think is probably one of the most forward-thinking folks in the real estate industry. Uh, I would follow all of his content. He took uh, a real estate business uh, in California from... A uh, hundred million to exiting for three and a half billion dollars, three point two billion dollars a couple of years ago. Uh, he is someone that you are probably it will it will be to your detriment to not have in your in your in your in your sphere in some way, shape, or form. Look, that's a that's a great get, and uh, we're going to have to reach out to you for contact information. We'd love to have him on, uh, but we have one more important question before we go, and that's simply. What's the best way that folks can get in contact with you if they want to reach out and learn more about improving systems at their business or, uh, you know, get in contact with you for consulting? Yeah. Uh, so uh, website is timcalise.com, T-I-M-C-A-L-I-S-E.com. And I'm on Instagram uh, and LinkedIn primarily. So, and I, I monitor all my own messages. So even though I have systems, reach out to me, say you listen to the show uh, and, uh, and I will take great care of you. And I, I look forward to hearing from you. Tim, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast today. And uh, we have to have you on in the future. Uh, looking forward to it. Thank you, Gordon. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks again to Tim for hopping on the podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a like, a follow and a review. 
Your interactions and subscriptions truly matter and help us provide quality guests. You can find us on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Gordon Lamphere with The Real Finds Podcast. Thank you for listening.